Rockheads, this is Carl with an update on Music to Code By. On January 4th, 2016, I released the 11th Music to Code By track, Gold. That's right, there are now 11 25-minute tracks, including the original three. And you can download them all in one big zip file for less than 50 bucks at mtcb.poit.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1247. Recorded Sunday, December 20th, 2015. And a welcome back to you, and uh, hope you're having a good holiday season. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And of course, we're geeking out. And this show's coming out like the end of uh, January, so I hope your holiday season is done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some people's holiday season lasts throughout the entire year. There you go. Well, yeah. and, and certainly the folks that are still on the uh, the Gregorian calendar, you know, they, <laughs> they, they're just getting to their New Year's now. Yeah. So let's just get started. I have a better know framework for you that uh, calls back to a topic we did on an earlier Geek Out. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? So you, we talked about CRISPR, the gene editing technology that has come up in the last few years, right? Yes. And I've got, I've got it earmarked for the GMO show that we're going to do in the next few months. And that's going to be a good one. We, we sort of mentioned it. I can't remember what show it was, but it's, it's an uh, acronym, C-R-I-S-P-R. And if you go to C-R-I-S-P-R-1, the number one, dot pwop dot me, this is an article that just came out December 19th. So it's fresh when we were recording this. Fresh when we were recording it. And uh, just to catch up on CRISPR and how it's going, because uh, originally some experiments couldn't be duplicated, but since then uh, the experiments have been duplicated and confirmed, and and uh, scientists are really bullish about it. In fact, this article that I'm linking to in the Los Angeles Times said this week the gene editing system was declared the breakthrough of the year by the editors of the journal Science. A day earlier, Nature named the Chinese researcher Hunju Huang one of the 10 people who mattered in 2015 for being the first to use the CRISPR system to edit the DNA of human embryos, albeit ones that weren't viable. And this is perhaps most interesting. Last month, researchers from UC Irvine and UC San Diego showed how mosquitoes genetically modified using the CRISPR system can be programmed to fight malaria in their bodies and pass that trait to 97% of their offspring. And just a few weeks ago, hundreds of geneticists, biologists, ethicists, and scientific policymakers convened in Washington for a three-day conference to address the ethics of using this powerful and controversial technologies. And and so that's sort of the keeping up with, you know, what's the latest in CRISPR. But yep. what's really great about this article is they link to a video put together by researchers at MIT 
to explain the CRISPR-Cas9 method for genome editing. And it's very visual and animation all around. So if you don't understand CRISPR, you probably still won't, but at least you'll have a visual model <laughs> to refer to. Um, and one of the things they say is so great about CRISPR is that it's so easy to use. It actually is as easy as swallowing a pill. But uh, just because it's easy to use doesn't mean it's easy. And so people are trying to get their heads around it. And I thought I would right. share that with you guys. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it is. This whole concept on genetic editing is a really, really challenging. Yeah, and especially now that you can see we're having tools come up like CRISPR that are so easy to use, it, it really just throws the whole conversation into the ethical. Yeah, what if I could reliably edit a, a fetus's genome to get rid of hemophilia, to get rid of cystic fibrosis, like all of these genetic diseases could well, be... Fixed. Well, you know, that's the upside of it. The downside of it, and where some would say the upside of it, um, the downside, of course, is if it falls into the wrong hands and uh, can be used for horrific evil. And it really could. So there you go. The good, the bad, the ugly. It's all about CRISPR. CRISPR1.pwop.me. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1208, the one we did on The Martian. Yeah. Because, you know, geek out shows. And, and that one, that show went really well. I think everybody was pretty happy with it. Got lots of good comments on it. Uh, and Eric Potter, who is a past winner, but this, this comment actually ended up being conversation where he was asked, he asked about, um, one thing I'd hope you'd cover was the Hab canvas. So this was the habitat that, right. uh, that Mark Watney had to live in. It seemed to me like it was one of the least realistic parts of the story. Right. Is this magic material that is light, flexible, and totally resistant to radiation, is there anything close to this right now? Hmm. I suppose if you're going to have a story about someone spending a long time on Mars, you don't want to know that the character is being slowly microwaved every day he's right. there. exactly. So I will concede that this is a necessary plot point. And, uh, you know, he's 100% correct. And, and uh, uh, Andy Weir, the author of The Martian, has said point blank, Yes, that was a magic hab. You know, I presume that we would have come up with a solution to that problem because every realistic design for people being on Mars puts their habitats underground. Yep. You, you bury, or at least you bury them. You, you, you put ground over top of them. And so, uh, but the alternative, and it's something I've been researching as we've been dealing with the issue of radiation going to Mars and so forth are these active radiation solutions could we actually do a powered radiation solution and uh and i mentioned that to eric in the conversation here and he said hey i like the idea of electrostatic radiation shielding but doesn't have huge power consumption requirements and like yeah yeah it does but also look if we're gonna go to mars and we're gonna do the in-situ resource process of extracting water and making jet fuel and so forth we already have huge power requirements I mean, we're not talking about this much, but there's virtually no manifestation of humans arriving on the surface of Mars that doesn't involve some kind of nuclear power plant. Yeah. There's just not enough solar panels to generate the kind of power necessary to do fuel extraction. And so a byproduct of that is you can do some other high power energy things like electrostatic radiation shielding. Not that that is an existing product yet, but it's one of the things that is possible when we have hundreds of kilowatts of power. Right. So I am, we, we don't want to think about it in some respects. People are very nervous about nuclear power, but it's one of the technologies that needs to be advanced in space for an awful lot of the things we want to do. 
and and there was some there's some research going into the 2000s that have been done in this, getting somewhere in the 400 kilowatt range, something fairly stable and simple, a lot simpler than the big power plants we have uh, on Earth, and a lot lighter too. But uh, it it hasn't been matured. It's yet another piece of technology that needs to be developed. Yes. So, Eric, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social media. We post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. So let's just jump into it. Space elevators, what are they? How do they work? And do they exist? So this is going to take a couple of twists and turns, so be ready. But that's fine. Yeah, we're ready. You know, I was thinking, was the Tower of Babel in the in the Old Testament, actually the beginnings of a space elevator. Huh. You know, there's some interpretations of that, because, of course, it was written in ages ago, right? It's right. A, almost a completely apocryphal story that they wanted the tower to the heavens. You know, there's even a group of people who say that actually that whole Genesis story is aliens coming to Earth and making humans, and so they had one of these things, and we were just trying to impersonate right. it. Right. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, they, that you're getting very apocryphal. I think one of the first times you see space elevators in a serious way is Arthur C. Clarke. Once again, more evidence that he entirely possibly was a time traveler. Yeah. Um, in, in, in his great book, The uh, Fountains of Paradise, 1979. And he actually goes through the whole process of, of building a space elevator. Uh, you know, there's a lot of challenges uh, and, and variations in this. At the simplest level, you start thinking, all right, well, I just want to, uh, you know, we'll just build a building, right? Yeah. Let's just, let's just build a building big enough that, you know. So if you go back to Konstantin uh, Tosiovsky, which is one of the original, original real space thinkers back right. in the 1800s. 1895, I think, yeah. Yeah, and he talked about, let's build a building, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all the way into orbit. How hard could it be? And the, and the problem, of course, is that you can't handle the weight. And the compression too, right? The pressure yeah, that's, up there. That's, just, that's the issue, right? It's just the, the sheer mass of anything that tall, right? We're battling this now as they're starting to talk about building a kilometer high skyscraper. Right. And this is, you know, much higher than that. So pretty quickly, if you're going to get serious about space elevators, you have to think in terms of uh, a tensile structure. In other words, a balanced structure. Mm. Now, where's the balance point? The center of mass for a space elevator is going to be geostationary orbit because you want it to be over one point on the planet you do yes. right i mean that's that's a fairly important part you want it to be somewhere consistently and you want it to be perpendicular to the planet at all times and just stay there right so that's thirty five thousand eight hundred kilometers or twenty two thousand three hundred seventy five miles up wow now we put lots of stuff up there already right this is where our uh, weather satellites hang out, where communication satellites hang out, because that feature of being in one location all of the time is very useful. It's a fairly far distance away, but it's very useful. And that is the balancing point. So when you start thinking in terms of an elevator, you really need to start thinking about a tether. Okay? Mm. And this is where this, we're going to spend, we have to spend some time talking about tethers, because tethers is the broader concept of which a space elevator is a particular incarnation of a tensile tether. Mm -hmm. So, suppose I put a satellite into geostationary orbit, and then I start winding a cable out of it towards the planet. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go back and think about, and, and re recall our show on space-based power. Right. We talked about gravity gradient control. 
Right. When we were talking about microwaving. Yeah, we were using microwaves to beam power down, but we were talking about building a satellite so large, many kilometers long. Yes. That the gravity at the bottom of the satellite, the pull is going to be different than the gravity at the top. And a side effect of that is it will naturally point down. Okay. It's it's kind of stable. It's an interesting idea, right? But there's a couple of other interesting effects that go on when you start stretching. And the problem is you have the cable stretching downward. It will tend to drag the spacecraft down. Yeah. One of the – there is a proposal because to, to clean up space junk by using tethers to drag the spacecraft down. So if huh. you're going to build something in geostationary orbit that has long cables coming out of it, they have to go both ways, right? You have to balance. So you have a cable pointing down and a cable pointing up. Now, gravity gradient also says you're going to have more gravity pulling on the cable going down, right, towards the planet than you have on the cable going up. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify. Stackify fully integrates application performance management with error and log management in one platform. Capture performance issues as they happen without having to wait for them to reoccur. A cost-effective and lightweight agent provides you code-level insights. Try Stackify now for free and get your copy of the hilarious Developers Against Humanity card game once you activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to get your free game. So what you're saying is, and just to back up a little bit, once you get above that geostationary orbit altitude, whatever it is, 35,000 kilometers, mm-hmm. um, or 30, almost 36, the, that gravity sort of pulls the other way? Now, n- I was, I thought about doing a whole conversation on orbital mechanics here, but it gets really academic after a while, and we only need a fairly simple set of our, uh, orbital mechanics. Okay. In order for you to hover over one spot on the planet, mm-hmm. your altitude and speed are set. Because the nature of orbiting is, if you increase your speed, you raise your orbit. If you decrease your speed, you lower your orbit. Okay? Mm-hmm. So for you to hover over one spot on the planet, not only do you have to be at 35,800 kilometers up, but you have to be moving at about 3.1 kilometers per second. Okay. And so the centrifugal force will push push the other end out if there's a weight on it. Okay, now we're getting back to the to the tether side of things. Right, and, right. And yes, there is a challenge in keeping the cable evenly stretched out mm-hmm. and evenly and evenly stressed. And you and then the gravity gradient matters here in trying to keep it stable. But what's interesting when you start thinking about this is we keep focusing on the in a space elevator the cables attached to the planet, mm-hmm. but it doesn't actually matter if the cables attached to the planet. Mm-hmm. Because it will, we're not actually having the Earth hold it on onto it. We're actually going to have it balanced. It's going to be balanced at that geostationary point, and that's why I'm saying that this is really just a tether. Yeah. And we've done a bunch of experiments with tethers because tethers are weird. <laughs> there's very interesting things. There's, there's two main aspects you need to know about with tethers. One one aspect is the electrodynamic aspect, and then the other one is momentum exchange. So let's talk about the electrodynamics first, because we've actually done experiments with this. Okay. So the Earth has a magnetic field. Yes. It's our friend. It keeps us alive. Keeps us alive and free of radiation. Very useful, right? And and the side effect of that large magnetic field are these things called the Van Allen belts. There are two of them, and they collect high-energy protons and electrons, alpha and beta radiation. And they will 
they will play a factor in our conversation. Believe me, they're, they're an important part of this equation long term. Mm-hmm. So what happens when you t- drag a metallic object through a magnetic field? Hmm. It makes electricity. What happens when you put a magnet in a, in a bucket full of pins? <laughs> <laughs> well, when you drag, if you have a, a, a magnetic field and you drag a metallic object through it, you make electricity. And, you make- and vice versa. If you apply electricity to that field, you can accelerate that metallic object. Yeah, if its polarity is correct. Well, all, all these things are easily doable. So if you take a conductive cable that's long enough mm-hmm. and put it up in orbit like that, hmm. it generates electricity. Wow. This experiment has been done. Wow. So, uh, curiously, in 1996, there were two separate tether experiments. One of them was on the space shuttle on STS-75. And this was a joint experiment done with the U.S. and Italy, where they extended a spherical scientific satellite out of the space shuttle on a 20-kilometer long tether. Hmm. Okay. That's long. Yeah. Right? Think about it. That's yeah. a long tether. You know, it's, that's what, 12, 13 mile long cable. Yeah. And just about when the deployment was finished, the cable broke. You know why the cable broke? <laughs> Tell me. It was generating so much electricity from being dragged through that magnetic field, it melted. Oh, wow. And so they lost the satellite, but they were able to get the, the, the news generally looked at this, the experiment as a failure, but they got almost all of the science they intended from it. And re, now the reason they were doing this experiment is because it works both ways. On one hand, you can make electricity just by dragging a wire through the, uh, through the magnetic field of the earth. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Now you're trading kinetic energy for electrical energy. You're going to lose momentum because of that, right? Okay. And, and to the point where you could actually deorbit a satellite by hanging a big cable off of it. But the reverse also works. If you apply energy to that wire, it will be pressed out of the magnetic field. Oh, interesting. Now, why would that be useful? Because you could use it to power uh, something that goes up and down the elevator. Well, we'll get there. But they were thinking about it in terms of the space station. The space station needs regular reboosts, right? There's still right. atmosphere up at 250 kilometers, right. and it's enough to slow the, the, the space station down. And so on a routine basis, they use rocket engines basically to boost it back up, to mm-hmm. put that, that lost height up. And that costs money. It costs energy. So what if we could use solar power to power a tether to actually do the station keeping? Hmm. It's interesting. It's no moving part. Right. Mom, uh, momentum only within the magnetic field of the earth but hey that's where we spend a lot of time so if it sounds like materials the material that you make that cable out of is going to matter immensely yes and and one of the things they realized is they had they had anticipated that they were going to generate electricity this was part of the test sure. part of the test was to create a dynamo current right that was absolutely the goal um, what they underestimated was the amount of power and the effect that being in vacuum would have on the cable. And it ended up having air pockets in the wire that superheated and they melted the wire. Okay. Um, and they never repeated the experiment, which is really interesting. They never mm. went back to it again. In the same year, a few months later, the uh, NRO, the, 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 the reconnaissance office, actually did another tether experiment. I just find it really interesting that they both did one at the same time. It was a secondary payload off of a spy satellite. And it was really two satellites, which they named, you'll love this, Ralph and Norton. Ah, that's great. And they were little, right? Maybe 100 pounds total, right? This whole system was about 150, 200 pounds. 
So the uh, Ralph was the bigger satellite and actually had the cable reel in it, Obviously. about 42 kilograms. <laughs> Norton was the small one. And the cable itself, the tether was four kilometers long. And it was nothing. It was just a Kevlar derivative. Okay. Nothing magical about it. And they were able to put it into a spin, rotating about four uh, RPM. And it actually stayed stable for 10 years. Wow. So they, they really, it was not a, it, they had reflectors on it and they were measuring it with lasers just to figure out the behavior of tethers, this, this four kilometer tar- tether, but it functioned just fine. So that's electrodynamic tethering. And it's an, it's an interesting set of experiments that, you know, 10 years later, 20 years later now, we really haven't done much with this. Right. Which is curious. Now, Let's get even more interesting. Let's talk about momentum exchange tethers. So if I have a tether that reaches down towards the earth and I rotate it, I could lift things into orbit with it. So there's this concept called a skyhook. So take a big, big, heavy satellite in geostationary orbit and extend a long tether of both ends of it and rotate it, spin it. So part of the tether swings down through the atmosphere and then comes back up again. Now, and the other half is outside of the atmosphere. <laughs> now, you can generate electricity to power yourself with that, and you can also put power into that tether to station keep with it. So you should be able to keep it stable. Huh. Now, in theory, you could put this cable almost all the way to the ground. Right. So imagine this tip would come down at about eight kilometers a second, which let's face it, that's smoking fast. Yeah. And it would, you could aim it to touch down just by momentum to a very specific point on the planet. It would have a couple of seconds at that point before the, the slack picked up and it would sling back up into orbit. You could grab a payload and fling it into orbit. Now, oh, I see. The forces here are pretty dramatic. Yeah. So skyhooks are really the the stuff of science fiction. In fact, a fairly recent book, Seven Eves, talks about skyhooks. You're not going to be taking a ride on it. You it, there'd be some fairly significant G's, but not so much that it would be fatal. It could be done. Huh. But you need magic materials, yeah. right? And that's the you know the whole space elevators, the skyhooks, all of these things have been largely fodder of science fiction purely because they need material they need unobtainium well right? what about carbon fiber this is well we'll get nanotubes. there because now that i'm talking to you about science fiction let me talk to you about science fact and this was the thing that completely freaked me out all right while i'm looking at skyhooks and going isn't this cool i run across a slide deck from night from 2000 Made by Boeing. So this is not, you know, a weirdo fringe. Because a lot of tether technology, if you go searching for tether, space tethers on the internet, you're going to hear a lot of weird fringe stuff. Right. Okay. So I'm talking the mainstream of the mainstream, the industrial military complex did an analysis called Hastol for the hypersonic airplane space tether orbital launch system. This is in 2000. So get this. Okay. First, you build an aircraft that can fly at hypersonic speeds. Now, this is 2000 when they were experimenting with hypersonic aircraft. This is the beginning of the X-43, and so the people were pretty optimistic. And there was a design by Boeing called the DF-9. 
This would be a very large aircraft, 270 metric tons at takeoff, carrying a 14 metric ton payload that's going to go to orbit. It has multiple engine systems. So it takes off with a turbo ramjet. So that's the same kind of engine as the SR-71. Accelerates uh-huh. up to Mach 4.5. Then lights a scramjet engine to boost it to Mach 12, which is halfway to orbit. Okay? Yeah. Because Mach 25 is where you need to get to orbit. So you're at pretty darn high altitude at Mach 12 when you fire a rocket to boost up to a pop-up at 100 kilometers, which is pretty much halfway to orbit. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Now, on the other side, we have a space tether. So at a 700-kilometer orbit, there is a station, right? That's a high orbit. It's not a super high orbit. So it's still considered a low-Earth orbit, really. Mm Mm-hmm. The station itself weighs 1,650 metric tons. This is all from this slide deck. So that's big, right? Yeah. That's a big, heavy station. It has a 600-kilometer-long tether on it. Okay. That's getting okay. there. Now, it's 600 kilometers long. The tether itself, just the weight of the cable, is 1,350 metric tons. Wow. Okay. It fires this cable, this cable is spinning, comes down into the atmosphere with a grapple on the end that weighs 650 metric tons. So what is it made out of? Um, the, the tether or the grapple? Well, the tether. The tether is actually not an obtainium. It's actually an ultra high molecular weight polyethylene called Spectra 2000. You can buy this stuff. Wow. It's 15 times stronger than steel. Okay. So, the way this would work is a rendezvous. So, you have an all hypersonic air, aircraft traveling at 100 kilometers in altitude, moving at Mach 12, which is about 4.1 kilometers per second. When this grapple comes down out of the sky and has a 12-second window to intercept, grab the payload off the back of the aircraft, lock it, and haul it into orbit. Wow. Really serious aeronautical engineers came up with this. Holy crap. Think about, you know, don't be too high. (laughs) Don't be too far ahead. Like the timing is incredible. There's a 12 second window. And what I love is on the, on the slide just before they went to next steps, there it said works in simulation. Ah. But really. One of the reasons that was one – of, one of the things that was interesting about this design is while the skyhook concept of literally throwing the cable all the way down to the ground, grabbing your payload and slinging it back up is just so fast and so intense that it's, you know, impossible materials and so forth. Right. This was a balancing act between the two. We're using real materials. Their point was none of the measurements here are impossible. Yes, it's very tricky, but it's doable with technology that exists today. Huh. Now, what they wouldn't know in 2000 when they were writing this is that their, most of their hypersonic experiments wouldn't work out. We do not have a Mach 12 capable aircraft. Yeah. You know, we've tried, they, the experiments continue, but the fastest we've gone is about Mach 5, Mach 6 with uh, air breathing aircraft. It's very hard to go faster than that. We're trying to figure out this technology. So that piece. And for those who don't know, Mach is the speed of sound, right? Right, but the speed of sound matters. Air pressure matters for the speed of sound. So the yeah. higher you go, the slower it actually is. Yeah. Wow. But in 2000, when everybody was optimistic about scramjet engines and so forth, here was this proposal. I mean, think about this. 
because we are talking hundreds of dollars per kilogram to get stuff into orbit with a system like this. Yeah. As opposed to 20,000 per kilogram right. for the current rockets. Once it's and, built. But this is, yeah, there's, there's a few things to be concerned of. One is that's a lot of mass to get to orbit. Mm. Like you add up the total weight of everything here. We're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 metric tons, considering our heaviest lifters are in the 60 metric ton range right now. Mm. So you're talking. 100 launches, 70 launches to lift everything based on this design to make it work. Hmm. When we only do 25, 30 launches a year as it stands right now. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there there's some interesting challenges in making that go on. But I bring this up because tethers aren't just the area of people with foil on their heads. Right. Right. Some of the very best minds have worked on this. And have said, these are reasonable materials, like all these pieces are there. This could be done. We have to solve some hard problems, but nothing involves unobtainium. Well, hey, buddy, you know what time it is now? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to liquidate all my holdings of Otis. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing the original Otis elevator building in New York. You know what I thought was funny about that building? What's that? One story. <laughs> that's great <laughs> I'm, I'm not making it up it's true <laughs> it's actually time to give away a d-experience subscription from developer express to one lucky member of the dotnet rocks fan club but first become a ui superhero with dev express ui controls and libraries and deliver elegant dotnet solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next generation touch enabled solutions for tomorrow whether it's an office inspired application or a data centric analytics dashboard dev express universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise learn more and download your free 30 day trial at devexpress.com/superhero all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Walter Kennedy. All right, congratulations, Walter. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah. And Walter just won the Dev Express D Experience subscription. That's a big pile of awesome from our friends out there. And if you don't know what we're doing, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And you got to sign up to win, though. How many times have we done that now? Four? Uh, yeah, I guess we've done the four, four big $5,000 giveaways. Yeah, we've given away $20,000 worth of stuff just for, list just for being a listener. Yeah. That's crazy. What are we doing? We got to stop we this. We're out of control. We're out of control. Uh. So in 2000, did when Boeing wrote this, you know, did this slideshow, did they know about carbon nanotubes? Was that a thing? Because I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, carbon nanotubes were first discovered in 1991. Okay. And, and, you know, and the reason they're important is this whole stress thing. So you've got this stressed cable, right? And the way we measure capability of stress is in what they call gigapascals. Okay. So this is a, a unit of measure for, for breaking force. Tensile forces. That's right. Tensile force. So that Spectra 2000 material that they were going to do the, uh, the hastel with mm -hmm. has a 2.4 gigapascal strength. That's 15 times stronger than, than steel, right? Well, 
Kevlar comes in at 3.6. Titanium is about 1.3. Okay. Okay. And the estimates for a space elevator for the tensile stress requirements for a cable that would, that would stretch from, uh, from the surface all the way, uh, up into orbit is somewhere between 30 and 80 gigapascals. So as long as we we're only talking one or two gigapascal capabilities, it's like, this is not happening, right? Like, forget it. It's ridiculous. We're tenfold, hundredfold out of the realms. Yeah. So along comes carbon nanotubes, right? Now, the early 90s was a great area of discovery for carbon in general, right? This is where graphene comes from right. and buckyballs and all these amazing things. Right, and right. they were largely made almost by accident. They were doing arc discharging with graphite electrodes. So if you take two ele- uh, graphite electrodes, you put them close to each other in an inert gas like nitrogen, something like that, mm-hmm. and you pass enough amperage to it, there'll be an arc that goes across them. And you're basically evaporating off the carbon. You're superheating it with electricity. And it, when it gets deposited, a bunch of weird compounds come out of it. And so we started studying these compounds. And one of the ones we found was nanotubes. And we learned how to play with them a bit to make different styles of nanotubes. So um, the, n- the normal sort of arc discharge approach is you make this thing called a multi-wall nanotube, which is multiple layers of nanotubes stacked inside of each other, right. which has some interesting effects. But the really sturdy one is this thing called a single-walled nanotube. Now, this is insane when you think about it, but this is perfectly hexagonal structured carbon atoms interlocking in a form that makes a tube a nanometer in diameter wow okay right very very small small. and they're light 1.3 grams per cubic centimeter so they're really quite light and they come in at so we were talking about that you know spectra 2000 material was 2.4 gigapascals Mm-hmm. Carbon nanotubes come in at about 130 gigapascals. Wow. So much stronger. Now, they haven't made tons of it. In 20, it, it started out really expensive, right? Like in 2000, when they first making it, it was about 1500 bucks a gram. Yeah. Now it's down to about $50 a gram as of like 2010. It's getting cheaper all the time. And is it, be, is it being used in industry like or just in the lab? We're still experimenting with it. Mm. And one of the problems is it's hard to produce it reliably. Yeah. In 2013, they made a half meter long continu- contiguous nanotube. Yeah. So half a meter. That's We got a lot of work to do there. It's getting there. Well, and part of it is the arc discharge is kind of random, right? So we actually need mechanisms that do it more reliably. And the, the most popular method, the manufacturing approach now is this thing called chemical vapor deposition or CVD. Mm-hmm. And what they do, what they're basically able to do is they make a, they start with a catalytic substrate, basically a plate that has individual iron atoms or nickel or cobalt atoms scattered on it. Mm. That the carbon tubes, and they, they put in a process gas, typically ammonia gas, and, a, and the carbon gas, ethylene uh, or, or xylene, one of the gases that has a lot of carbon in it. And then they heat it very carefully. And the, catal- the catalytic points, Carbon, these carbon nanotubes naturally start to assemble. So they're getting better and better at building them. Yeah. Uh, Because you're going to need a lot, right? We have to be good at building carbon nanotubes. Right. But one of the things that's happened is we started, you know, that's the original nanotube research going back into the early 90s. Right. But it's not the only one. So there's another kind of nanotube called a boron nitride nanotube. Okay. So this is this was predicted in '94, so just a few years later. By 1995, they've made it. So they used boric acid and ammonia under pressure and temperature to make hexagonal structured boron nitrides, which is a combination of boron and nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And 
When properly formed, they could build the same kind of tube structures that tested out at 400 gigapascals. Oh, really? So 130 from carbon nanotubes. We need up to 80 to build this uh, space elevator. Here at 400, like five times the requirement. And is it easier to make? Mm, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> but we continue to experiment with materials. We're not done yet. Yeah. Just in 2014, we ran across another technique using benzene. That's nasty stuff. That's the cancerous uh, contagion in uh, in gasoline. Yeah, ben- benzene is used to raise octane levels. And so, but the thing that's interesting about benzene, and we could do a whole show just on uh, organic chemistry. Yeah. So what's cool when you actually look at benzene from a from a molecular point of view is it's six carbon atoms in a hexagon with six hydrogen atoms mounted around the outside. Uh, and that structure is really important because it's almost the shape of a nanotube as it is. So when you take benzene and you put it under an intense pressure, it forms a kind of nanotube they're calling a diamond nanothread. Sounds strong. <laughs> At, this is absolutely current. Like this is research going on like in 2015. Wow. They're still figuring this stuff out. First measurements of the DNTs of diamond nanothreads, 900 gigapascals. Oh, my gosh. So now we're talking about, you know, a thread so fine you can't see it holding up a car. Yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy strong. So we, we've stumbled into a bunch of nanoscience that's starting to build materials that make this whole concept of a space elevator, of these high-tension things, really feasible. So where does okay? graphene fit into this? I mean, I thought graphene was the strongest substance on Earth. Well, graphene is a sheet of, of carbon, right? A right. single molecular sheet. In theory, really, when you look at it, a carbon nanotube is simply a rolled up sheet of graphene. Sure, yeah. Okay. The, the, the thing, and it's certainly strong. It's, it's got some remarkable properties and so forth, and it has its own problems being manufactured as well. Um, it's just interesting to think in terms, like, what's interesting about the diamond nanothreads is they were, that's really only comes in tube form, not in sheet form got it. so far. Yeah. Right. It's also, I appreciate that it's a combination of both hydrogen and carbon together. So they're sort of taking advantage yeah. of both elements and how they mount together. But 500 times stronger than steel. Yeah. Well, and and part of this is also, what are the conditions it's going to live under? So one of the interesting things about boron nitride is that it's less reactive. Carbon is quite reactive. Mm. And these cables that we're going to put into space, they're going to be under some tough conditions. And so part of this is how long is the cable actually going to last, how reliable that is actually is. Now, if you noticed, we're about two-thirds of the way through the show. Yeah. We really haven't talked about elevators yet. Yeah, we're just talking about what's needed to make them. Right. And some of the science that we've already done, the sort of recognition of this concept of a tether. like, But I think it's all the groundwork for like, okay, we have materials that are strong enough. We understand this idea that we aren't actually building something up from the ground into space. We're going to start in geostationary orbit, and then we're going to extend outward so that we touch the planet and we balance ourselves. Yeah. So if you're really going to build a space elevator, you're looking at building a cable somewhere between 90,000 and 144,000 kilometers long. Now, for those doing the math, that's about a third of the way to the moon. <laughs> Right, because remember we have gravity gradient to deal with. So we're starting in geostationary orbit, right, up at at um, 
35,800 kilometers, let's mm-hmm. say 36,000 kilometers. Yeah. So we're going to go 36,000 kilometers down to the surface. We need to balance that out the other way, at least around 90,000 kilometers out, right? Yeah. That's sort of the balance yeah, point. Yeah. Now, the most serious research and sort of defined project that I've found on space elevators comes from Japan. Okay. It's a company called Obayashi Corporation. Now, this is a real company that builds buildings and ports and all kinds of things. And they are kind of adamant that they're going to build a space elevator by 2050. Wow. Here are the specifications of their design. And I'll include a link to their website and the videos and so forth so that you can take a look for yourself. The cable would be 96,000 kilometers long. At the end of that cable would be a 12,500 metric ton counterweight. That is, that's not up in geostationary orbit yet. No, that's at 96,000 kilometers. That's at the end. That is the tensioning cable, the tensioning weight to balance the entire system. Right. Your main station is going to be at 36,000 kilometers at geostationary. That's where you're going to go to. What's going to go up and down those cables are these things they call climbers that are about 100 metric tons each. Yeah. So I guess what I'm not wrapping my head around is how does a big counterweight way up in the sky not fall down and to earth? It's, it's, uh, it's being, well, yeah, it's, it's orbiting at the, at the appropriate rate is at 96,000 kilometers up. And it is held in place with the cable, and it's actually maintaining tension on the cable. Oh, you said 96,000 kilometers up. Oh, geez. So that's three times the geostationary orbit. Yes. It's a third of the way to the moon. Yeah. It's way, way, way up there. Now, how are you going to build this thing? Right? That's the tricky part. Like, what do you, how do you actually construct this thing? And deploy it. Well, exactly. And, and you're going to build it in, you're going to build it in phases. So it starts by assembling a spacecraft in low Earth orbit. Okay. It's going to take multiple launches because there's a lot of stuff you need to put on it. It's going to be quite heavy. And then it flies up to geostationary orbit over the point where you're going to put the Earth station or the Earth port, mm. right? Now, the Earth port needs to be right on the equator. The most logical place to put it is actually in the sea. Right. To some degree. Uh, I would guess somewhere near Singapore. Okay. Uh, because that Singapore has a big ocean going port. The water, the ocean there is relatively shallow. It's right on the equator. There's lots of advantages. That's a great spot. There's only, you know, mostly along the equator is very deep ocean. Mm. And then, or, or you get into quite rugged terrain. There's Ecuador as a possible pieces of eastern, um, uh, of eastern Brazil. Uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is neither Democratic nor Republic. Yeah. Um, you know, it gets hard, yeah. but I would bet somewhere around Singapore makes sense, especially when you're talking about this Japanese company. Okay. And shallow water, good. Yeah. And shallow water, so you can anchor it in the, you can anchor it in the ocean. You know, it's going to have some give, but that's fine. So you, you put this spacecraft up into geostationary orbit and then it begins to unwind the cable in both directions. Now the initial cable is going to be very thin and light, right? You're not building the full scale cable right away. You are gradually deploying the cable outward and you're going to have to put more weight on the outward side away from the earth than on the inward side because gravity is working on the inward side for your favor. But you are going to have an initial 96,000 kilometer long light cable that you're going to unwind o- over time. It'll take several months to deploy this cable until it actually reaches the surface of the planet. Now, at that point, you have 
you're able to lift very light climbers. And actually what these climbers are going to do is bring more cable on. So you have a diamond nano thread coming down to the planet. You now mount these climbers on and they drag new diamond nano threads up the cable going all the way to the 96,000 kilometer point, the huh. end point wow. to add mass up there. Okay. Now, how many of them? Yeah, too many. Well, I have a 500. Huh. So, and every, and all 500 of them stay up there. They add, they contribute to the mass of the counterweight. Remember, we've got to get that counterweight up to 12,500 metric tons, considering we can only lift, you know, with a Falcon 9, 50 metric tons at a time, right? So, we're not going to have that much mass initially. We're going to send these climbers up, dragging new diamond nano threads behind them over and over and over again. Yeah. Over a period of probably the neighborhood of 20 years. Okay. Now, when the cable is built up enough that it can start carrying real mass, we'll start building stations. And we're going to build a bunch of them. The main station, of course, is the geostationary station at 36,000 kilometers. And that's the only point on the whole cable where you're actually at zero G. Further down the cable, you're actually going to have gravity pulling you towards the Earth. And further up the cable, you're going to have gravity throwing you outward. Yep. Right? right? You have momentum tossing you outward. Right. So, actually, if you want to have the experience of being on the moon, you can go up to around 5,000 kilometers on the cable. And at that point, you'd have about one-third G. Right? Huh. You're only going to have free fall right at geostation orbit. Now, let's not even worry about the people part of that. We'll do that later. But if we just think in terms of use this elevator to deploy satellites. Okay. There are different points along the cable where you can build a station, essentially, uh, to deploy Satellite. So if you want to put a satellite in the low Earth orbit, the correct, the, the point at which you're moving at the correct speed to be in low Earth orbit, and low Earth orbit is, you know, around between two and 300 kilometers, mm -hmm. you actually have to go up to 23,750 kilometers up the cable. Okay. Because that's the right speed, but it's the wrong altitude. So when you let your, your satellite go, it's going to naturally fall yeah. down towards the 300 kilometer mark. So you need to refine the orbit, but it, you're, and you're going to have to, you're still going to have to put some thrusters on it so it can actually maneuver in the orbit you want, mm -hmm. but it's a lot less energy to do that. If you go all the way to the end to the, the 96,000 kilometer point in the cable, you basically let go and it will fling you towards the outer planets. Yeah. Somewhere around the 57,000 kilometer mark is about the right uh, escape velocity to go to Mars. So you can imagine if you construct this 96,000 kilometer long cable, at various points along the cable, you're going to have stations. If the, the, and the stations have gravity in them, right? Right. So the stations below the geostationary orbit point, the gravity is pulling towards the Earth. So it'll be the orientation you think. Yep. When you get above, it'll actually be oriented the other way. Yeah. You'll be looking, when you look up, you'll look towards the Earth, right. as opposed to when you're below the, the geostationary point, when you look up, you're looking towards space. Interesting, huh? It is interesting. And part of uh, Obayashi's design includes this idea of using inflatable HAB modules to build the space that people can live in around the cable. So they're actually looking at about eight separate cables in a bundle so that you can have multiple climbers going up and down these cables and the HAB space basically wrapping around the cable going up and down from that cable. Hmm. So there's only going to be – what's interesting is thinking you're only going to be able to build so much HAB space in that it's going to be in free fall. As soon as you go higher or low beyond a certain point, you're going to have some gravity effects. Now, we, you mentioned earlier in the show 
the when you pass through the magnetic field, some electricity gets generated. Yes, Did, but we really didn't talk about what happens to that ele- electricity. Um, do you are you able to harness it to power any of this stuff? Well, this is an interesting question. So, depending on how you build the nano threads or the carbon tubes, whichever piece you use. Uh, there's different assembly strategies that make them conductive and non-conductive, mm-hmm. reactive and non-reactive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you could be collecting electricity from that. Just understand that when you collect that electricity, you are creating more drag. So you have to counter that somehow. Yeah. Right? And I think this is part of the piece. We have not done enough research on tethers to actually understand the entire effects here. That energy drain could actually collapse the cable. It could break the cable. It could accelerate the cable, increase the strain on it, right? We mm-hmm. could, so we're going to need to be able to balance against that because mm. you, you don't want to overstress the cable. It will snap. Um, well, once you have electricity though, you can power m- things that will counter the effects of it. No. Well, and plus you're up in geostationary orbit. So this is a great place to put a whole bunch and, and you've got a space elevator. So lifting solar panels up there is pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. Like we're back to space based power becomes a much more feasible technology. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we have a lot of options for generating electricity. Mostly it's going to be managing the problems of that electrical field moving through that tether as it's conductive. Right. There's other problems. The Van Allen belts. Yeah. So there's two Van Allen belts, right? There's an inner and outer, right? Then the name for a guy named Van Allen. Uh, the inner belt is the bigger concern. So the inner belt is between a thousand and six thousand kilometers. Okay. And it is, so these are bands of magnetic eddies created by the planet, by our spinning nickel iron core, mm-hmm. and they collect high energy particles. So the inner belt that actually has primarily alpha particles, high energy protons, quite dangerous radiation. Sure. Now we've only ever put humans above those Van Allen belts one time. Do you remember when? It was the Apollo missions. Okay. Yeah, when we went to the moon. When we went to the moon, we had to cross the Van Allen belts. And one of the things they deliberately did, because they knew about these these high-energy protons, is that they they did not fly through them. The inner Van Allen belt only stretches a few degrees either side of the equator, about 25 degrees each side. So if you go above 65 degrees above the equator, you can actually avoid the inner Van Allen belt, which is the more dangerous one. But you cannot do that in a space elevator. Why does the space elevator have to be at the equator? Because that's how gravity works. Because otherwise right? it would f- it would bend around, right? That's right. Yeah. We'd have all kinds of bending problems. We have to put it on the equator. Yeah. And the Obayashi folks are planning on having these 100-ton climbers move at about 200 kilometers an hour, mm-hmm. which means to get to geostationary orbit is a week. Yeah. Right? So you are going to drive through this 5,000-kilometer-thick radiation belt at 200 kilometers an hour, right? It's going to take you a day. It's going to take you a day to get through that thing. You're going to have to survive that. Right. But serious radiation exposure. That radiation exposure is so serious that they deliberately shaped the Apollo mission so they didn't even fly through it. Mm. Now, there is the outer Van Allen belt as well. And the outer Van Allen belt stretches from about 13,000 kilometers to 60,000 kilometers. Now, it's beta minus particles. It's high energy electrons, which are, you know, in the end, it comes down just like, uh, like, like any toxin. It's all about the dosage and all about the intensity. Yeah. Uh, when the Apollo mission flew through the outer band and belts, they were moving fast. So they minimized the amount of time they were in there. And that's not an option. Again, we need to fly right through that, uh, with a, with a space elevator, but 
not as worried about the outer belt as you are about the inner belt. It's they, this is a serious problem and there's no simple solution to it. Wow. Although. Yes. Going back to the tinfoil hat tether guys, there's a project called <laughs> high volt for the high voltage orbiting long tether. Okay. The concept is five, 100 kilometer long cables that actually drag through the Van Allen belts to discharge them. Oh. Think about it. The, the, the belts themselves are just highly polarized, right? One is very positively charged. One is very negatively charged. Huh. If you could actually drag tethers out of that zone, you could ground them out. Now, I don't think this would actually work. This just seems too much like tinfoil hat to me. What's even crazier when you start reading about this stuff is people saying, you're destroying the earth. And I'm like, you know, the actual radiation that's sitting in these belts is more the garbage. The, the, it's the magnetic field that protects us. And the proof that, that it is protecting us is all these high energy particles that have been collected in it. Right. Discharging them is not a half bad idea, actually. Could you actually drain the highly charged particles out of the Van Allen belts to make them safe to pass through? Could that be sort of a milestone in becoming a spacefaring civilization that you learn to manage your radiation belts properly? And there's no way to sort of, I don't know, go around the Van Allen belt on maybe on both sides at the same time to uh, to balance it out. I, you know, I don't understand physics enough, but I can just imagine that if I was trying to avoid an area, I would sort of, in a balanced way, go around it. Well, the problem is it goes all the way around the planet in a band. But if you're going up, it's a... Oh, it goes all the way around a planet band. So I thought all it was all the way around the planet. I thought around you said the it was around the equator only. So if you go five thousand kilometers in either direction, yes, around it. Well, you, it's further than that, but yes, okay. you're, you're right. You know, it only angle. It, it has an angle, right? Yeah. Above sixty-five degrees inclination, it uh, you you don't pass through the inner belt, mm -hmm. so you can avoid it. Uh, but you can't with a space elevator because right. the space elevator goes right through it. And he goes through it slow. Yeah. Uh, so that's arguably the biggest issue. Now, we already fly spacecraft in, in Van Allen radiation belts all the time. We just don't fly people through them. Mm -hmm. So we could still build a space elevator just to lift supplies and things, right? Yeah. And, and, and we do deal with satellites orbiting in these Van Allen belts and they have a bunch of resistances and protections for it and so forth. We can, we can make that work. Um, other issues, collision risks. You do not want things hitting this uh, elevator, right? You don't want it hitting the cable. Space debris, aircraft, like all of these things are potential issues for how strong is this cable? Can it take the impact? Mm. So, you know, there, there's uh, certainly an e a need for us to clean up space debris before we really get into this because uh, it's going to – the worst set of space debris are along those low inclination orbits towards the equator. There's another, another really interesting uh, paper I read about monomolecular oxygen. So what the heck is this? Okay. As you get into the higher parts of the atmosphere, um, where particles are, are less common, right? There's, there is less atmosphere, but it's higher energy. You end up with oxygen atoms that are by themselves. Normally, oxygen atoms like to be in pairs. They're happier in pairs, right? Yes. It's H it, 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 even though we call it H2O, generally it's actually H4O2, right. right? Oxygen atoms like to be in pairs. And when they're not in pairs, they go find a friend. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and that friend happens to be the carbon holding up your space elevator. Oh, well. <laughs> so uh, this thing called oxygen erosion in low Earth orbit is a serious problem. It's, it is uh, almost like there's an acid in that low orbit. Mm-hmm. And mo- so generally what you do is you fly your spacecraft out of that. But you have a tether going right through it all of the time. So that cable is going to be exposed to those high erosion areas the entire time it's there. And it means that the cable may need to be continuously replaced or repaired in those high erosion spots. I thought the materials that we're talking about here are seriously strong and resistant to corrosion and all that. But, you know, strong is one thing. Resistant is another. And this is where you get into one of the reasons they're exploring with stuff like borium nitride and so forth is how well does this stand the conditions of space, yeah. uh, the high energy levels, all those different things. So it's one thing to make a material strong enough to handle stress. It's another thing to have it resistant to everything. And it's a, a very challenging problem. But if you, you know, again, if you crack it, they talk about, you know, going from $20,000 per kilogram to $200 uh, dollars a kilogram. Yeah. Like, there's a hundredfold decreases when you get talking about space elevators. Yeah. We're coming to the end of the show. I just want to mention there are a couple of other alternative technologies to this that sort of play with different ideas on other ways to sling stuff into orbit. Um, things like launch loops, where we instead of putting a cable into orbit, what if we just had a cable that was mounted uh, on either end of the ground, but 2,000 kilometers long, and the middle part was around 100 kilometers high. And so you'd actually accelerate something along that cable. And then as it got to the high point, you fling it off and go into orbit. Okay. So you'd be able to, you'd able to run power through because it it's mounted on the ground. You're just suspending the cable uh, into almost low Earth orbit. It's an interesting it idea. It's an interesting idea. It's a huge amount of energy. There's all kinds of dangers with the payload handling, moving through the atmosphere that quickly. Mm. But, uh, you know, we've experimented with a lot of ideas like that. An even weirder one was one called a space fountain, where you have <laughs> a, uh, a tube that is basically being held up into geostationary orbit because you keep firing pellets through the tube. Yeah. And at the top of the tube at geostationary orbit, there's a loop. And so the pressure by having that um, pellet go around that loop actually holds up the cable. So you'd be consuming a lot of power and continuously firing these pellets up. And if you stop firing, the whole thing starts to fall. But uh, yeah, okay. Theoretically possible. Mm-hmm. Interesting I stuff, it makes, man. It makes the space elevator seem a little more sane. But I want to, <laughs> you know, I hope I got across this idea that this is all about the tethers. Right. And that we, we did tether experiments 20 years ago, that we being NASA, and we stopped. Yeah. And if we really want to understand doing any of this stuff, we need to start again. We need to start experimenting with these materials. We need to start experimenting with the behaviors of uh, the dynamic behaviors that, that come from doing uh, electrodynamic tethering. As And then just if you take a good look, for, I'll, I'll leave the link to the slide deck for Hastel. It's just chilling to think, wow, they were serious. I'm going to build a hypersonic aircraft and then I'm going to meet it with a, with a tether moving at Mach 12. Yeah. I am, um, I, I, unlike a lot of these things that we've talked about, like, you know, traveling to Mars and, and all of that stuff and interstellar space travel, this yep. one seems like it's not only doable, but the benefits could seriously, uh, be huge. And, and in yeah. terms of the, the, the costs of moving things up into orbit, um, the ability to get above, uh, get above geostationary orbit cheaply. And for all sorts of reasons, just seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, it seems hugely valuable. And you know what's really interesting is start thinking about these kinds of systems off Earth. 
Put one on the moon. Yeah. Put one on Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's classic uh, Mars trilogy, not only did they put a uh, a space elevator onto Mars that you know made it a lot easier to move stuff up and down from Mars, but it also got sabotaged and it fell back to Earth hmm. or fell back to Mars. Yeah, actually, yeah. I mean it's interesting to think about it. This cable is ninety six thousand kilometers long. The circumference of the Earth at the equator is forty thousand kilometers. Like this cable would go around the planet twice yeah. on its way down. Yeah, yeah. Which would be big mess, be awesome (laughs) in the the (laughs) pretty true sense of the word. (laughs) Yes, like we would be in awe. We would be in awe. Like that's a big cable. A big cable. Mostly would hit the ocean, which is useful because you wouldn't want it hitting anything else. It'd raise water levels. (laughs) Yeah, but it's a it's astonishing, and it's not pure science fiction. There's a lot of research that needs to be done. But it could, uh, you know, we see the pieces. We just got to choose to put them together. All right, buddy. Thanks for another great geek out. It's been fun for me. Awesome. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a